We'll hear argument next in number 94, 1988, Camp's Newfound Owatonna, Inc. versus the Town of Harrison, Maine. Mr. Dempsey. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question that is raised in this case is whether a particular provision in a main statute dealing with property tax exemptions for charitable organizations is or is not constitutional. The challenge to the statute is laid upon the Commerce Clause in its dormant or negative aspect, that is, without the existence of any relevant congressional action. Under the proviso, a charity that is otherwise entitled to receive the exemption is denied that exemption if, to use the words of the statute, it is conducted or operated principally for the benefit of persons who are not residents of Maine. Now, the petitioner is such a charity. It was denied the exemption on those grounds, and that really is the core of the case. Now, the remaining facts are simple. They're not contested. I can summarize them quite swiftly. The matter was disposed of on summary judgment below. The petitioner is a Maine corporation. Its only activity is to conduct a summer camp for children in the town that is now of Harrison that is the respondent in this case. It is dedicated to serving Christian science families. There are not a great many Christian science families in the state of Maine, and accordingly it recruits and advertises outside the state broadly, and it serves principally people, children, who are not residents of the state of Maine. Indeed, during the three tax years in question, about 95 percent of the campers that were served at the camp came to the camp from other states, states other than Maine. Why should the taxpayers of Maine subsidize charity to people outside of Maine? I don't know why they should be compelled to do that. Well, they're not a commerce clause. Surely. Uh, the purpose, Justice Scalia, of which is asserted, and let me go directly to that, uh, the purpose that is asserted to be the purpose on the face of this statute is a quite reasonable purpose. It is to confine the dedication of the resources of the state or the community to the benefit in these particular areas of residents of that state. Now, that purpose is as legitimate as the purposes that were served in the waste disposal cases that, that you've had before you, uh, the purposes of encouraging private industry, all the purposes that are listed in the opinion of the courts in chemical waste, for example. There's nothing at all censored about the, about the purpose. The question, as in almost all of these cases, is whether or not the means that were adopted to achieve that purpose impacted improperly upon interstate commerce. But do, do those other cases, those other cases don't involve as proximately as this one does the, ex, in effect, the expenditure of state money. It seems to me that this, that is the, the granting of a tax deduction to charities. It's just like giving charities uh, the state money. I don't know that those other states involve, those other cases involve that. It seems well, to me this is closer to the situation in which the, the state is a market participant and the state chooses to purchase its goods only from in-state companies, which, well, it's, in, which it's entitled to do. Let me, let me try to address uh, that question in the two aspects in which I understand it. Uh, in terms of its being a, the equivalent of a tax expenditure, your first point. 
Uh, that is, as I believe you yourself have indicated in your concurring opinion in the Westland Creamery case, is true of all exemption and credit cases. And the court, as you pointed out, has always regarded tax exemptions and credits as being the equivalent of taxes themselves. So that if you take uh, a case that I think is closely in point, the Darnell case involving uh, a property tax, again, exemption upon lumber that was produced in the state that was involved, an exemption for that lumber but not for others, that amounts to a tax expenditure or, if you wish, a subsidy. In the Bacchus case, the exemptions that were granted there to the liquors that were produced in the state of Hawaii were, in effect, tax expenditures on behalf of those of those people. Of those well, logically, there's, it's hard to see a difference between a tax exemption and a direct subsidy, isn't there? That's Precisely but you I say the say. court has drawn that distinction. I'm sorry, just kind of. But you say the court has treated them differently. This court. I mean, has well, what if it were a direct subsidy of cash to a Maine charity, right. based on how many Maine residents were served by the charity? Precisely. Would that be all right uh, for, that's for a, Maine? That's a very interesting question. Let me try to move into it more gradually, if you will. Um, and I want to come back to the market participation question that Justice Scalia raised, because these are really the dual, dual justifications that the state advances in this case. Either it's like market subsidy or market participation, or it's like subsidy or both. Now, let me just preliminarily, though, note a problem with that argument. The state, as you know, is not here. The state participated. Uh, it intervened as a defendant in the trial court. But when it lost, it did not pursue its appeal to the main law court, and it has not taken advantage of its opportunity to participate in this proceeding. So the defense of the state statute is left to the town of Harrison. Excuse me, Justice. That's because the tax goes to the county, not the state? This, this real property tax? I, yes, uh, I'm sure that's right, but in terms of fact. But the reason for the states participating at the trial court level and not appealing is a matter that I am in no position to comment on at all. There may be precedent for that in this court, but I've not seen a case in which a state statute has been attacked as unconstitutional, in which the state participated in the at the trial court level and then abandoned the case coming before you. But I'm but the tax the tax uh, in this case was the ta the town's tax that was tax. authorized by yes. state law. Yes, correct, Justice Ginsburg. Yes, and so wh you while you you were outlining the. Um, is it like a subsidy? Is it like a participant in the market? It's, is it at all relevant that real estate taxes on real estate go back a pretty long way? And, and I thought that the original, the, that thought had little to do with commerce, but had to do very much with the public service that the charity, or most traditionally the church, was supplying for the local community. Yes. And not as some notion of worldwide benefit. Well, I, let me make sure that I, that I understand your question correctly. I'm asking you to, whether this, it, we can say real estate taxes um, originate uh, exemptions from real estate yes. taxes. You don't tax the church property from uh, something that had to do with um, benefiting locals. And that's why we, that's why these exemptions from the real estate Real estate doesn't move from one state to another like lumber does. No. Is there something special about real estate where an exemption from the tax might be 
supportable in that area and not in others? Well, uh, let, let me put it this way. Uh, if you were to take that view and distinguish between real estate and personal property taxes, for example, because after all, personal property does move, then you would have a, an awkward situation here because part of this tax was personal property and part was realty. My first point is that that makes an awkward distinction in this particular case, as it would in any case. My second response would be that consider Darnell. Uh, that was a personal property tax on lumber that was brought into the state from another state, the exemption being given to lumber that was produced in the state of Tennessee. Now, if they could escape the effect of Darnell simply by transforming the form of the tax, they could then levy the tax on the real property, the warehouse in which the lumber was stored. Now, I, I'm suggesting that uh, that if that kind of an exception is made, it would open the door to all kinds of manipulation of taxes in order to take advantage of that single loophole. Not if it's limited to charity. Uh, why, now, uh, be, be, yes. Before you can yes. decide that, that there's been discrimination against, uh, against uh, out-of-state commerce, you have to decide that you're dealing with two taxpayers who are similarly situated. And why isn't it entirely reasonable to say that they are not si similarly situated? Where a charitable, where where this deduction is at issue, where one of the taxpayer provides charity to the citizens of uh, uh, of Maine, right, and the other one does not, right. Well, that, why why are they similarly situated? I don't think you can run that argument in the normal commercial case, where all you can say is that one is an out is an outlander, the other one isn't. But right. here, one of them is giving something yes. gratis to the citizens of, May, uh, of Maine. Why doesn't that make that uh, taxpayer I understand. Different? I understand, Justice Scalia, the force of that, of that reaction to the case. Now, let me try to catch up with the strands of questions that I have, because they're all related, and I don't want to lose track of any one of them. Let me go to the church support by property tax, because that's, in, in a way, related to the very last question you asked, Justice Scalia. I suggest to you that, and, and the market dominant, market participation, and the subsidy issue, I suggest that if the state were here, it would be very, very reluctant to make the market participation or subsidy argument. There are, in every state, I'm sure, there are statutes, exemption statutes for church property. Now, if, as the respondent argues, what the state is doing here by virtue of market participation is somehow purchasing camping services for the benefit of its residents, or subsidizing the camps for the benefit of its residents, then, by parity of reasoning, it is somehow purchasing religious services from no, the church. No, but isn't, isn't the answer to that that it's purchasing a great number of other things, too? And for that reason, uh, it doesn't fall afoul. I mean, it's purchasing all sorts of secular uh, benefits on the same ground, and for that reason, it doesn't fall afoul of establishment. Oh, I'm sure it doesn't fall afoul of establishment, Justice Souter, but the reason it doesn't is because it's not market participation. The state, as Justice Scalia, uh, uh, as in the new energy Limbaugh case, the state here is not purchasing anything from anyone. I don't think the argument is that the state is a market participant. Right. I was just arguing that by analogy to the reason we think market participation is okay. Right. And you can discriminate against your, your out-of-state citizens when you're a market participant. Right. So also you can do it in this, in this situation where you're dealing with someone who is providing a... Uh, you know, a service gratis to service the service. Yes. All right. Well, let me address. But let, just before I forget, uh, Justice O'Connor, on the subsidy question, um, of course, the 
subsidy defense does not have the same quality of imprimatur from this Court as yet as the market participation test does. But, as I've indicated, for my purposes, I'm perfectly willing to assume arguendo that any sort of a subsidy is immune from the Dormant Commerce Clause just because this just isn't a subsidy. That's all. It's, as in Limbach, it's a tax. As, as Justice Scalia said, it's the primeval function of the government in laying and collecting taxes. Now, what is suggested is that, and I, I really thought from the start that this is the way in which this case might develop. It really hasn't developed this way until right now. And that is to suggest that there is some sort of an exception for charities that is analogous to the market participation or the subsidy of that, indeed, is an exception. Now, the, the, the respondent uh, abstains from making that argument. That doesn't mean that it's not a good argument. But I point out that we did say at the outset, well, let's consider this issue. And, and, and the respondent says, no, we're not trying to draw that distinction. I think myself that the respondent is correct in doing that because it seems to me it can't possibly or shouldn't anyway make a difference whether you're dealing with a nonprofit or a profit. Let me just start at that sort of primitive in that primitive basis. Nonprofits in this country, and that's what we're talking about, uh, are big business in every sense of the word, except that they don't make a profit in terms of their employment and their purchases and the interstate commerce that they affect. They are big business. Now, instead of taking camps for a moment, um, but they're in, they're in business. They're in business in the state of Maine, as just, just Souter, I'm sure, is aware. Before you go too far down that yes. road, as I understand this, uh, this law, it doesn't apply to all nonprofits. Correct. It applies to only those that they have to they have to sell their services for no more than thirty dollars a week. Is no. What, what? Well, yes. I'm sorry. Excuse me. No, you're quite right. If, you if know they have a modest charge, then they get a modest exemption. But if they charge more than thirty dollars a week, then they lose the exemption. Then they lose the exemption. Now, do you know anybody that can possibly run a run a camp for thirty bucks a week? without giving a lot of that away for free. So you're well, not just talking about, quote, nonprofits. You're talking in every case under this law about companies who are giving away stuff free to residents of Maine. No, we're talking about nonprofits here who serve primarily citizens of Maine who may charge $1,000 a week, who get the exemption. Right? It's, that applies I, only to when they're serving... Out-of-state people, right. and it's under if, 30. If they're serving Maine, primarily or principally Maine citizens, then they may charge $1,000 a week or $2,000 a week, and they get the exemption. I see. And, yes. and the $30 applies only to out-of-staters? No, if you serve primarily out-of-state citizens but only charge $30 a week, then you lose only part of your exemption. I see. see. 50000 so, which might not be um, huh. the lion's share of, of it. Of the tax anyway, right? The, t or the tax in this case, if you're asking about the... Well, it the, depends the, on how much, what is the value of the property. What is the value of the property? In this case, the tax in each of the tax years in question averaged about $22,000. So it does depend entirely on the value. So what you have... I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah, we really are talking right, just, you have just a, about charitable organizations. relationship yeah. within the state, nursing homes, um, camps, some of which are, uh, many of which are nonprofit, but... They are in competition directly with these charities, so-called charities. Yeah. And these people lose the exemption, and they lose the exemption because they serve too many people from out of state. Would a hospital lose its exemption if it took a lot of out-of-state patients? The hospitals are not covered by this provision of the statute. 
uh, Justice Stevens, and I should point that out. This proviso applies only to the... Now, I'm saying that without really being certain, and I'm going to consult when I sit down my colleague, Mr. Dale, from because what we have in the state of Maine, and it's not my field, goodness knows, uh, is, a, is a statutory system in which a number of different categories fall under different provisions, so that, for example, uh, Bates and Bowden and Colby uh, who serve certainly uh, more than uh, more non-residents than they do residents don't are not subject to this proviso because that provision of the statute is not burdened with this proviso. So it's only this section which deals with so-called benevolent and charitable organizations, a catch-all, but does identify with particularity some types: camps, nursing homes, boarding homes and mental health treatment facilities of communities, and then whatever else falls within the catch-all, and I've got to get the answer as to whether hospitals well, at least do or you give me the answer for a mental institution. If they took too many out-of-state patients, they uh, would... Mental, community mental treatment centers, so it would not be a mental hospital. But take a nursing home. A nursing homes, obviously, they're private. They're profit-making nursing homes. They're non-profit nursing homes. If you're on close to the border of whatever state you're close to the border of, and you serve more than half, uh, now that the division as to what is principally and what is not has not been made, but let's say it's more than half, people from the other state, you lose your exemption. And you're in competition with those other nonprofit nursing homes. If it were pro rata, would you have the same, would you have a constitutional objection? Suppose that said to the extent that you serve people from out of state, you don't get the exemption. But to the extent that you serve, so in your case, you could get 5 percent exemption because you have 5% from in-state. No, my argument would be the same because my argument has to do when they're getting to interstate commerce. You can approach that problem in different ways. As I indicate, we focused on the impact on interstate commerce because of Edwards versus California and the long line of cases bringing within both the affirmative and the dormant commerce clause interstate transportation and the effective statutes on it. But the effect would be well, there anyway. What is, what is the effect of... Uh, the harm that you're complaining about, can be yes. precise about yes. that? Well, uh, what you have here is a plain incentive to these organizations to limit the number of non-residents that they serve. Now, they can do that in order to get the tax exemption if they're close to the edge. They can do it by... But your, your, yes. your camp isn't even within that We're not range. Close. I mean, you, you describe something. You say this will give uh, camps like yours an incentive to take people only from in the state, but it, your camp can't operate. That's not, that's not what it is. Not without a massive conversion to Christian science in the state. So, We're in great so it's, not, <laughs> it's not going to it, have no. that impact. It what, is not, what is the impact? Yeah, all right. And, but I, 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 I don't want to leave that because I think the statute is attacked on its face, and surely you must contemplate in judging the probable impact of the statute situations in which by imposing a quota or imposing a differential fee schedule, a camp or a nursing home or whatever could qualify. So, Do we know, in fact, that there is any such camp in the entire state of Maine that's, where there would be that to say, gee, we're pretty close to the 50 percent mark, so we have to be, serve in-state people, not out-state? No, the record does not disclose. The record, all that the record shows is that there are some camps that qualify for the exemption and some that don't, and that's well, all it. What, what, if, what if the statute... Uh, granted a charitable exemption only to charities domiciled or headquartered in the state of Maine? Absolutely. Without any question, in my judgment, that is perfectly all right. Uh, and indeed, 
Uh, I think it is it's natural, normal, to be expected, uh, proper, and every way reasonable for a state to say we're not going to grant a charitable uh, property tax exemption unless this charity is here doing work to benefit the people of this state. I don't right. have any yeah, I mean, You, you can be there without doing work to benefit the people of, uh, of the state. Your domicile can be there, and all right. of your charity can be expended in Bangladesh. Right, but I'm going and beyond that, beyond the Chief Justice's question, and saying I think it's also proper to say that the charity must perform charitable services in the state. Now, we don't, that question isn't here. This camp is open to everybody. But that's a different question than it's, it's you can be domiciled in the state have all of your operations in the sur- state, but everybody you serve is from out of state. That, that could well be, and all that I'm suggesting is that a requirement that a charity expend, if this is the question, not only be the, the domicile chief, the there, but spend money I, in the state. Mr. Dempsey, I yes. thought the chief's question was, suppose the main law was charities who are domiciled in this state are exempt from real property taxes in this state. I thought you answered that that would, you gave an unequivocal that would be okay. Absolutely, in my judgment. So, but, so let's take a charity situated in Maine, operating only in Maine, right. but serving only children from India. That you, your I, answer is that that I, would get the, my, that no, would be I, constitutional. I, I mean, oh, there, there would be it no. It would be unconstitutional? I, I'm sorry. No. It, it, ser- it serves only people from out of state. Right. Here. No, well, there wouldn't be any complaint in. Let, let me see if I can. This is a question that, that, of course, I've considered as soon as I started on this case. What happens to a state that wants to make sure that a charity that gets an exemption does something for the people of the state? And it's been... Excuse me? How does it do that? Well, it's been my view, and there's no case law on this that I know of, uh, but it's been my view that uh, it is appropriate and proper for a state to say not only must the corporation be a main corporation, which this statute does require, but that it's got to do something in the state of Maine. Now, some of my amicus curiae friends would not agree with me uh, on that issue, you know, I, I think. But can, my, but I, can we get back to the question of how people situated as your client is, how that harms? Yes. Because we've already established that at least for this category of camp, they're not going to change the composition of the people who come to them. And we don't know whether there are any such entities that would decide to take, uh, we right. just don't know that. Yes. So, so what, is, what other harm are you complaining about? Well, uh, I complain I, I, about the tax. <laughs> you're you're out of pocket, I suppose, is your big Well, but I mean, that's right. No, but that's you can't, in other words, we, we are suffering a financial loss, and what the record does show is that part of that is passed on to the to the uh, campers, and part of it uh, detracts from the ability of the camp to perform certain services. That's the other line of interstate commerce approach to this problem. That but if you're just take. complaining about that there's this tax and you don't like to pay it, mm-hmm. suppose Maine has a higher sales tax than other states, and it's a good question more to operate in Maine. No, but if, that. if the sales tax or the real estate tax or any tax is imposed upon an organization because it serves too many people from out of the state, a hotel, uh, a motel, any kind of a service organization, a grocery store, because it serves too many people from out of the state, that involves a competitive relationship between those organizations and organizations that get the exemption within the state. And that's I don't, a financial not, burden not, that disadvantages but them. But you're not competing 
with um, charities that serve Maine people. Uh, that's not, I don't see the competitive situation. Uh, well, I'm. Because you, you just started out by saying, no, we wouldn't change our campus with no, Christian scientists no, no. from all over the United States. No, but just now that, that point has been made that by the law court that we're not really in competition with anybody else because we serve just Christian scientists. Now, that argument has, it seems to me, a rather unfortunate ring to it, but taking it and ignoring that, the fact is that other camps are in the, in the state of Maine, and they're open to Christian scientists, science families, so that we're competing for that group. So you're competing to give away money, not to make a profit. I, 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 uh, <laughs> unreal to talk about competing to give away money. I can give away more money than you can. Uh, are you hurt if someone else gives away more money than you're giving away? I don't understand that. That, that, that is not well, competition uh, to my just, mind. Justice Scalia, nonprofits are... Nursing homes, just look, looking at the way that nursing homes operate or any kind of a treatment facility, any kind of nonprofits, they are in competition for contributions. They're in competition to build up their staffs. They're in, you get the, their, the evidence of their competition every day in the mails. They are in relation one to the other in competition, and they are affecting interstate commerce. And I don't want to leave the point... Uh, that you made, Justice Ginsburg, without noting again that this statute is being attacked on its face. And, Justice O'Connor, the question you raise about a kind of a graduated subsidy to me is a very difficult question. I, I will just say that. I think that clearly the state could have done what it wanted to do here by eliminating the tax exemptions and providing vouchers to the citizens of the state to use wherever they want it. Could it do it by saying every organization, that every charitable organization that serves a citizen of this state gets a $1 deduction from, from its income tax each time it serves a citizen of the state? Could it do that? No, I don't think so. For the same See, I think it could. Well, I, as I understand, your, your argument is even if you lose on this point about the parity of competition, your argument, as I understand it, is essentially the same. Because you, yeah. say, you say, number one, you can't draw a charitable versus for-profit distinction because, in, in fact, they are both businesses in a given place. And number two, even apart from competition, uh, you are discouraging interstate activity. Exactly. And that's the essence exactly. of the, 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 the fall. Essence of the argument. Yeah. Can, can, you, can you tell me what, what is the philosophy uh, that allows you to concede uh, that in the voucher hypothetical there would be no Commerce Clause violation? What, what is the basis for the distinction between that case and this? In, in, in that case, with each citizen armed with a voucher to go wherever, there would be no incentive on the part of any camp to limit its service to non-state people. There just wouldn't, that's all. So that aspect of the case just disappears in the context of a voucher system. In the context of a subsidy system that's graduated to out-of-state service, then you're getting to the edge, it seems to me, of where the court has been moving in terms of validating subsidies. A flat subsidy would be okay. That kind of a subsidy, uh, I think there's a question. I'd like to reserve the balance. Very well, Mr. Dempsey. Mr. Plop, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, before addressing in detail the three arguments in my brief, which I use to support the conclusion of the results achieved by the uh, Maine Law Court, I want to address two fundamental points, which I think should be addressed at the outset. The first one is that there is no federal constitutional right for a nonprofit organization to receive a tax exemption from local uh, property taxes. The second fundamental point is that state legislatures have 
great latitude in deciding who should be tax-exempt and who should not be tax-exempt. This is especially true, I believe, when we are talking about taxation from real estate tax, or exemption from real estate taxes, which really are a quintessentially local matter. I would suggest to you that that discretion of state legislatures extends to being able to determine what benefit Maine residents, in this case, uh, are to achieve, are to receive in return for this tax exemption. In response to the amici in this case, who, from reading their briefs... You're, you're asserting that unlike other tax exemptions, this is a quid pro quo type of tax exemption. We're giving this one because the state is getting something gratis from these organizations, and that distinguishes it from other tax exemptions. Fundamentally, Justice Scalia, that is one of my arguments, that this is like the market participant exemption in Hughes versus Elliott's Andrea Scrap and uh, uh, the Massachusetts Council case involving the city of Boston. Um, so it's like, it's like, for example, we give a special exemption to our farmers, only to our local farmers, because they keep the land green and, and they, uh, in addition, uh, provide employment uh, and they uh, uh, maintain the state as primarily agricultural. I mean, is that a justification? Justice Breyer, this or is discriminating against out-of-state farmers? This actually is quite unlike that type of a, uh, of a subsidy or a tax. I understand that. I understand that. My question really is, if we're going to start looking to local benefits as a basis for discriminating against out-of-state travel or commerce, what road are we going down? Doesn't that erode most of the Court's jurisprudence? I don't think so when we're talking about exemptions for charities. And the, the, the reasons are these. Uh, first, what is being returned uh, by the charity uh, to the people are in the nature of governmental services, services that the government otherwise would provide, feeding the hungry, uh, sheltering the homeless. And, and if that means then that, in fact, the hungry in other states, the children who want to travel to the local hospital across state lines, the people who want to travel across state lines to get an education, uh, all of the different uh, people out of state that want to use commerce to take advantage in state. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm saying so. The, or a weekend canoeing at Camp Okefenokee. I don't know that, that, that a state would no, provide that if a charity wouldn't provide it. Don't those people use commerce? Aren't they discriminated against just like the out-of-state farmer? What actually is the distinction that arises out of the fact that it's a charity? Well, the second distinction is that um, the other exemptions addressed by this court, for example, in Westland Creamery, uh, there were two problems with that. One, it was intended to give a competitive advantage. There really is no competitive advantage here. And secondly, the tax that was collected... Well, why is there no competitive advantage? Suppose you get an identical camp that just had 95 percent of its residents or children are from, the, from Maine. Why isn't there a competitive advantage? Well, the, of course, the fundamental discrimination that we draw is between for-profit camps and non-profit camps to receive an exemption. There's also competing. competition there, Justice Stevens. And but, but let me just, you just, I just want to challenge you on your no competitive advantage. You have two non-profit camps. One has 55 percent Maine children there and one has 35 percent Maine. Doesn't one have a competitive advantage if it gets an exemption and the other does not? Well, part of, part of the answer, I think, is what is the competition? Is it to dispense more charity, to feed more homeless, uh, more, uh, homeless people or to shelter more homeless people? Uh, I really don't look at that in terms of competition. In a case like, situation like this, one can Actually, you dispense more charity by losing more money, I, I assume. <laughs> well, of course, 
the universities, which are presumably charitable in some respects anyway, uh, uh, and they say that each education they give out costs more than the student pays, nonetheless, they compete for students. Well, of course, universities uh, in Maine are under a separate section of the statute, and this provision we're talking about, but the primarily benefits, doesn't apply to them. Yeah, but they can be under this section of the statute if you win the case. If a state legislature were to so determine? Right. If you win this case, the state legislature or whoever makes these decisions in Maine can say uh, uh, Bates, Colby, etc., are, are all going to be fully taxed uh, if, if they have this high proportion of out-of-staters. Isn't that so? Well, we haven't done that. I, no, but you can, can't you, if you win this case? It's legislative discretion. Could a legislature do it? And to the, the Miki, I would say legislatures could choose to tax colleges and universities. That's, that's not so scary. I mean, uh, the legislatures right now, no matter how we come out on this case, could simply eliminate the tax deduction for, for, public, for private universities and choose to subsidize, give some of the in-state tax money to those in-state universities that have a majority of in-state students. They can do that, right? They could do that. So this horrible can come about no matter how we come out in this, in this there case. Is, there is no constitutional right to a tax exemption. And no, but you, but you but couldn't, they couldn't give the subsidy to a, a church camp, could they? Ah, that's the Walsh question, Justice yeah. Stevens. And I would like to address the Walsh question because that has been brought up in, in the reply brief. The Justice Berger's opinion in Walsh, Chief Justice Berger's opinion in Walsh, um, specifically avoided focusing on the secular good works the churches do as the rationale for granting them an exemption. He focused rather upon the history of how we have treated churches and religious organizations in this country since its founding, and before that, how England treated them. And he also focused upon wanting to avoid the entanglement between government uh, and the churches that could come about if we did tax them and didn't pay their taxes, we might have to foreclose on their property. Uh, Justice Douglas dissenting uh, took another view. He said this is a focus on the secular good works. To get to the issue made in the, um, uh, by the camps or the petitioner uh, in their brief, um, this court actually, I think, dealt with the problem that is raised by the subsidy to the churches in Regan versus taxation with representation, when then Justice Rehnquist, now Chief Justice Rehnquist, wrote that, um, in fact, exemptions, this was under a, a case involving a 501c3 exemption, and the uh, petitioner felt that they were being discriminated against because they engaged in lobbying activities, and under 501c3 could not be granted that status, so contributions to the petition were not tax deductible. And uh, Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist uh, wrote first that the exemption is really the equivalent of a subsidy or even a cash grant, those words were used, um, cash grant, and that really the government has no obligation to subsidize the First Amendment activities in that case of the petitioner. And in a footnote, Chief Justice acknowledged Walsh and did not find it to be at variance with this case, with Regan, uh, where they were dealing with clearly secular matters. So I think the court has addressed the problem uh, that has been brought up by the petitioner. Mr. Plouffe, what is the cutoff for being uh, serving, for, for qualifying for this exemption? You have to serve dominantly Maine residents, but what is it, 50 percent? Uh, what is it? Justice Ginsburg, the statute says principally benefits, and throughout the course of this litigation, we have treated that as being 51 percent. Um, with respect to the other sections of the statute that have been raised, if I could take this opportunity to do that, hospitals are hospitals are licensed by the Maine Department of Human Services. 
are in a separate section of the statutes. But, but let me stay with the, what the division is, because do I, do I understand the statute to work this way? We have two camps, say, for the blind. One serves 50 residents of Maine, and it's exempt from this tax. The other serves 50 residents of Maine and 50 residents from elsewhere in the United States. It doesn't get the exemption, yet it's providing the same services. That, uh, that would be up to the local assessor uh, who acts as an agent of the state to determine whether or not the 50-50 meets the Well, let's make it 60-40 so we won't run into to that problem. 40 percent from Maine, 60 percent from outside. That, no exemption at all. That would be true if, if the non-exempt entity chose to be insular, not to provide any other services to the surrounding people. And that's one of the problems in this case. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure. I'm, it's, a, it's a camp for the blind, and it serves the same number of Maine people as the camp that serves only Maine people, but it's a larger camp, so it also takes in a lot of people from out of state. So it's rendering exactly the same benefits to the state of Maine, but it's also including these other people. Un Let me answer your question directly. Under, if that is all that camp did in terms of dispensing charity, and the answer is yes, you would not get the tax exemption in the other camp would, even though they both serve the blind. But the point I wanted to make is when read carefully, this statute doesn't focus on the uh, residency of the campers or, in your hypothetical, the residency of the blind people. The statute focuses on how the charity spends its money. And certainly in the case of a summer camp, they're usually going to spend their money just on the kids who pay the money, the tuition money but they could choose to do things like open their beautiful beach uh, to the people of Harrison. And that would be a benefit to Maine people uh, that could be included in the computation of do they principally benefit Maine people, but they don't do that. But a, but a camp that served just Maine residents so would not have to do that. A camp because they would already be serving Maine people. Right, so you're, right back to where, you're right back to where you started. There's a discrimination between in-state and out-of-state campers. There's discrimination drawn, uh, Justice Kennedy, based on the benefit to Maine people or no benefit to Maine people. How long has this law been in effect? Uh, seems to me it's more trouble than it's worth. My goodness, computing. <laughs> how, do you, how do you value the use, uh, the use of a beach, for example? Has this thing been around a long time? I mean, I, the, I see en endless litigation over this. The, <laughs> the provision that we are arguing about. Maybe we should strike it down for foolishness or something. <laughs> The provision that we're arguing about was enacted in 1957. It was upheld by the Maine Supreme Court in 1963 in a case that was decided on 14th Amendment grounds, in which the law court said, we don't think that it's irrational or unreasonable for the state of Maine, and this is peculiar to charities, for the state of Maine to require that its people get something in return, in return for this forgiveness of taxes. And that was a 14th Amendment case. This court, when it's visited this issue before in WHYY Inc., a similar issue, only that one was the state of incorporation of the charity, used the 14th Amendment analysis. And there's dicta in WHYY Inc. to suggest, and I admit that it is only dicta, to suggest that had the facts been as they are here today, that may have been okay under the 14th Amendment. Now, the petitioner raised the 14th Amendment claim in this case below. And the law court ruled against the petitioner, so did the Superior Court. And they chose not to appeal 
that 14th Amendment decision to this Court, apparently agreeing that the statute does pass the 14th Amendment test. Well, I think you, we, we, we accept the fact that the 14th Amendment is a much more lenient standard of review on these matters of economic regulation than the Commerce Clause. I mean, that's a given under our jurisprudence today. That's why the other Darnell case got over, uh, in effect, uh, overruled or rewritten uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Carolina tax case last year. I mean, the standards are distinctly different. So the fact that you may pass muster under the 14th Amendment doesn't get you over the line on the Commerce Clause. I understand, Your Honor, that the Court can, in, in this case, is looking at this under the Commerce Clause. Um, and in looking at it, what tests do we apply? Uh, it appears to be facially discriminatory against interstate commerce. So it may be a, a tougher standard. If, if we choose not to use something like the market participant exception and uh-huh. therefore apply the dormant Commerce mm-hmm. Clause to it, then the question is, is it per se or the flexible approach, and the law court chose the flexible approach. Looking at the, the per se uh, question, I think there are three things we need to look at. Statute, statutory language, and then, if it survives that, the effects of the statute, actual effects and inferred effects. And the statute itself, as I said before, I think focuses on the benefits that are provided by the corporation. Well, but if you, if you concede that even uh, non-profit organizations can engage in interstate commerce, you can certainly look at this, uh, let's say in the nursing home context, as being facially discriminatory. I, I respectfully disagree, Justice uh, O'Connor. Um, on its face, it's a tax or an exemption from a tax on real estate, number one. We've never considered real estate under the Commerce Clause here before. Number two, it looks at the, at the identity of the people who have benefited, not the identity of the people who cross the state lines. And so I don't think that there is facial discrimination. And number three, as the law court said, it treats all main camps the same. May I ask? There is the target. You can go out and meet the target if you want the exemption. Do you think the people benefited do not include the church that runs the camp? I'm not sure that I understand the question, Justice. Well, you, you say you look at the people benefit, and I just suggest one of the people benefited would be whatever the charity it is that gets the benefit of the exemption. Christian Science Church in Boston, for example. The church is actually owned by a separate main corporation. And, and, and supposing it, it, it runs, just take the focus on the church for a minute. Supposing the church is near the state line and over half the people came from a, out of state, would the church, would you say that the church should not get its exemption because the people who are benefiting from the exemption are the people who cross state lines? It seems to me the principal beneficiary of the exemption is the church itself. Well, again, I think that under, under Walls, churches are treated differently by the court. And we yeah. have a church here. Excuse me, Ron? And we have a, we have a religious organization here. We, ha- we have a nonprofit main corporation that is not itself a church. Churches are, are treated differently under the main statute. The 50 percent test doesn't apply. It's a nonprofit main corporation. They have an affiliation somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how, with the Christian Science Church. They do allow only Christian Science uh, children in, and I believe that uh, at, at some point during the day they review the Christian the tenets of the Christian Science faith. But it is not a church. I see. But let me ask one other question. You place so much emphasis on the real estate fact it's a real estate tax. If it were not a charity. You would not contend, I do not suppose, that in a, in a commercial context that the state could discriminate, have, have a tax exemption for businesses that sold only to Maine customers 
and no, no tax exemption for those that sold out-of-state customers. I think I have a couple of responses to that, Justice uh, Stevens. Uh, one, uh, I think that would fail a 14th Amendment analysis. Well, under, just confine our analysis to the Commerce Clause. And it would have under Green Acre Baha'i, which is the main case. Under the Commerce Clause, I suggest that because it is a, the implications of it being an exemption from a tax on real estate is that it would fall under the flexible approach or would fail under the flexible approach because there would be no legitimate state interest. Well, the interest would be to encourage local commerce, encourage transactions within the state, encourage the local economy. I, I do not think that that would, that would survive. Um, just well, supposing there were two camps, but, uh, not charitable camps, but, but just uh, for-profit camps, one served out-of-state, the other served local, and they say we won't uh, we'll give a tax exemption to those serving the local people. Wouldn't that have the same justification as this? I, I, don't, I don't think it would. I, maybe the charity is becoming involved in my thinking. I think, I mean, I, I'm just suggesting that the charity is critical to your argument, and you've seen it, and I don't think your, your real estate argument can stand without coupling it with your charitable argument. But, I, but I'm not sure what's your position. I, I, again, under, if it's real estate, then I don't think that it's facial, that it's indirect um, effect on interstate commerce, and because it's indirect, you look at it under the flexible approach, but I think it would fail under the flexible approach because it would not, I can't conceive of a legitimate state interest, for example, in the motel situation that's raised in the uh, reply brief. I can't think of a legitimate state interest for tax Providing cheaper hotels. housing for local residents. Give them cheaper rate at the hotels. Give people a marginal income. I, I certainly will. a state interest in having people sleep indoors at night. Of course, you, you could make all of those same arguments against uh, against uh, the market participation exception we've created. You can say it's the same thing. The state is simply trying to uh, give its own citizens an advantage over out of state. We've made an exception there, and we've made an exception uh, 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 in in the. Uh, uh, in the subsidy area. Uh, and, and the issue is whether we should make an exception for charities, whether that also is a distinctive situation. And again, and, and Reagan, uh, this court has, uh, Regan, I'm sorry, this court has clearly characterized uh, charitable exemptions as uh, cash grant subsidies. The amici here say they're subsidies. And they are from the general fund of the town of Harrison. This tax goes into the general fund to pay for municipal uh, services, police protection, fire protection, roads, um, and the very services that ironically benefit uh, the petitioner, yet they don't want to pay the tax. But the point of the general fund is the uh, language in Westland Creamery seemed to be very uh, interested in the fact that any subsidy have to come out of a general fund. This is a broad-based tax. All other people in the uh, town of Harrison have to pay this tax. Okay. Mr. Pluff, could you, going back to Justice Stevens' uh, hypothetical, could you explain to me why it is, in the case of the two profit-making corporations as to which a distinction is made, uh, the discrimination would not have been facial? You said it would not have been. You said it would, it would, it would get the, as you put it, the flexible approach, and I don't see why. Uh, I, I think because we're talking about real estate and we have never applied the Commerce Clause to the taxation of real estate, which doesn't move across state lines, that effects that a tax on real estate or an exemption from a tax on real estate why, why does the fact that real estate doesn't move across state lines, why is that significant? Well, the language of the positive commerce clause. I mean, interstate commerce is going to be affected, whether, whether you're doing it through a real estate tax or, or any other form of taxation. Uh, why, why should it matter that the, 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 the specific race that is taxed happens to be, happens to be itself a non-ambulatory? 
perhaps I have a narrow view of the Dormant Commerce Clause. But, but isn't it the effect on interstate commerce that we're concerned with? We are, but the question becomes, is it uh, per se a flexible? And I'm saying there isn't a, there could be in the hypothetical an effect on interstate commerce, um, but that it would be indirect and not on the subject to the per se rule. And well, I would also add that Directness and indirectness hasn't got anything to do with, with the fact that it's real estate that's being taxed, number one. And, I, and number two, I don't know where the direct-indirect distinction comes from. Well, I think that the tax on real estate may or may not be incorporated into the charge made by the for-profit organization. There are other ways that they could handle that if, comp- if the competitive marketplace said, gee, we just can't pass on this tax and stay in business. We'll find other ways to deal with this in the marketplace, for example, reducing staff or reducing overhead, those types of things. It's very indirect before it gets to the consumer. And um, the other issue about the hypothetical is whether or not we are going to treat consumers as articles of commerce. Well, nobody is arguing that you're going to treat consumers as articles of commerce. The argument is that interstate commerce, that is to say, the movement of people back and forth, the provision of services to people from out of the taxing state, is going to be affected. Their argument isn't, they, they, they don't make the argument that the campers are articles of interstate commerce. Well, they, I think they did in the, in the first brief. Let's put that aside. They certainly do make It escaped me, but uh, it's, it's clear in any event that they have, they have abandoned any such attempt if they ever made it, isn't, isn't it? Uh, they certainly have not abandoned the attempt to say that the travel of these campers across state lines is protected by the Commerce Clause. Well, I, I, are, you, are you challenging that assumption? I, I certainly am uh, testing that. Uh, Interstate travel that. is not protected under the Commerce Clause? I don't read Heart of Atlanta or Edwards for the proposition uh, put forth by the petitioners. Do you, do you, do you, think, that, do you think that interstate travel uh, has an effect on interstate commerce? I think the provision of interstate travel by bus companies, for example, does. I think that salesmen who well, travel don't these campers perhaps arrive in Maine by bus or by plane or by train or some such means? But we're not taxing the plane or the bus or the train. No, but we're, to, we're asking whether interstate commerce is affected. And, and if it's affected by bus travel, then I suppose this is a case in which it's affected. And I'm suggesting that it would be an indirect effect and subject to the flexible approach. But I, I still do not read those two cases for the proposition uh, for which they want them to stand. Okay. How broadly do you take charities outside the dormant commerce clause? I know your position here is that charitable exemptions, real property tax exemptions, shouldn't be analyzed in interstate commerce, and you've given, given several reasons for that. But are you saying that nonprofits and whatever exemptions the legislature, state legislature, chooses to give to them is ever and always, because they're nonprofits, it falls outside the range of the Commerce Clause? Uh, My argument goes so far as to cover an exemption from income taxes, which was the case in Regan, federal income taxes, Uh, excise taxes, if they would pay any excise or have any occasion to pay them, and sales taxes. We exempt them from sales taxes and income taxes and property taxes uh, in the state of Maine. And if they are going to challenge uh, the impact of how the lines are drawn by the legislature in granting those exemptions, then my argument would say that it's under market participation because in each one of those cases, the state is asking something in return. We may think that it's provincialism on the part of the state of Maine to write 
its statute this way. But I don't think that's the question. The question is whether or not the state legislature in Maine can do this. We, we would never, never, never <laughs> think of uh, accusing the state of Maine of uh, provincialism. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, do you know of any case of ours that, that uh, involves a uh, Commerce Clause challenge to real estate taxes? What cases of ours or exemptions from real estate taxes? I have found uh, none, Your Honor. I, the WHYY case is as close it's as very I interesting. It, 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 does it produce a, a sort of discrimination uh, against out of state, uh, an out of state church, for example, to give a, a tax exemption to uh, any church that owns real estate? They're exempt from the real estate tax, but, but if you're an out of state church, of course, you and happen to be located in a state that taxes uh, uh, church real estate, you're, you're at a commercial disadvantage, I suppose, if you consider the attracting of uh, parishioners as commerce. I have great difficulty mm -hmm. considering the attraction of parishioners as You're Garnering in a collection plate. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would say that in WHYY, again, uh, this court did strike down a distinction be based on the domicile of the corporation. And that was a real estate tax, and that was a charity, but it was uh, determined under the 14th Amendment. The Commerce Clause was not mentioned at all. No other questions. I thank the court. Thank you, Mr. Plouffe. Mr. Dempsey, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I just have two comments. Um, I, the, one of the questions that Justice Scalia raised in terms of how old this statute is raises another question, also your last question about property taxes, and that is why hasn't this court ever seen a case like this before? And the short answer is that legislatures have not passed statutes like this before. Now, there have been scores, thousands of statutes that we don't know anything about, but we have examined and the respondent has these statutes on the books. We have discovered one in the state of Michigan that can be considered comparable. The respondent has turned up three more. We deny that they're comparable. But in any case, if this statute is not absolutely unique, it is almost unique. And that says something because the policy of the Commerce Clause doesn't have to do just with economics. It has to do with interstate comedy. And we suggest that this unbroken, almost unbroken pattern of behavior by the legislatures says something about how the states feel uh, uh, to be the, the demands of interstate comedy. Now, the last point is Justice Connors' comment and Justice Scalia's comment. I hope it goes without saying, because I didn't say it, that our case is rooted in the basic premise that this statute is facially discriminatory against interstate commerce. Justice Scalia... I think you're absolutely — I started with this notion in the petition for certiorari. If you apply all the ordinary canons that this Court has established over the years dealing with these cases, the other side has got to lose, in my judgment. The only way out is to create an exception for — I wouldn't say charity — non-profit organizations comparable to the market participation or the subsidy charity. Now, we've advanced all the reasons that we think that that would be an unwise move on the part of the court, but that really, I think, is the issue. Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Dempsey. The case is submitted.